Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. John Pico is the founder of Watermark Consulting, a leading customer experience advisory firm, and now author of the new book, From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. You're really going to enjoy this interview on this episode. John thinks deeply about enterprise-level customer experience from both a customer perspective and what it takes to create the culture that truly creates a remarkable and memorable experience, well beyond what he considers a low watermark of just satisfying customers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that I think that's a common thread with companies that do this well is that, you know, they're in it for the long game. Uh, you know, there are sort of two approaches. You can solve for uh, the customer experience that's going to maximize long-term loyalty, uh, you know, which I would argue is best for your financials in the long run, or alternatively, you solve for the customer experience that minimizes defections. And you know, that is really setting the bar low. I don't know how that's inspirational to anyone that works in one of those companies. Let's listen in now. John, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, Michael. Glad to be here. Well, it's really great to meet you. I've, I've had the chance to go through your book. It's really great stuff. So I'm very excited about the conversation and learn more about you and delve into these perspectives uh, that you deliver in the book. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us about yourself. So I am founder and principal of Watermark Consulting, which is a customer experience advisory firm. Uh, I'm also a, a keynote speaker on uh, customer experience, employee experience, and leadership topics. Um, before I launched Watermark back in 2009, um, I uh, had a corporate career where I was holding uh, senior executive roles at Fortune 100 companies, leading at various times uh, sales, marketing, service, distribution, uh, and even IT. Uh, and then in terms of Watermark, um, you know, the best way to describe the work Watermark does is um, to tell you about the origins of the name. Uh, so, you know, years ago before there was Google Docs and Microsoft Word, when people wanted to put a Watermark on a piece of paper, they actually did it by making a physical imprint in a piece of parchment. And that imprint made the parchment richer and more distinctive. Sometimes it was actually used to prevent counterfeiting and duplication. Uh, and that's basically what my firm does, but relative to the customer experience. We help companies to watermark their experience uh, in a way so that it leaves an indelible impression, not in a piece of parchment, but in the minds of the people that you're serving, um, helping to cultivate the repurchase and uh, referral behavior that's really the lifeblood of any business. Um, and in terms of uh, the types of clientele that Watermark serves, you asked, uh, generally mid to large sized organizations, mostly Fortune 1000 firms, uh, cutting across many industries, financial services, healthcare, technology, telecom, consumer goods, uh, just to name a few. Well, all right, let's talk about your book, From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. Tell me about why you wrote the book. Where did you see some white space on the shelf uh, for what you had to say? And, and uh, talk about that journey. Yeah, well, uh, first, I wasn't that busy when I wrote it just because I actually wrote it during lockdown uh, once, once uh, you know, the pandemic was was upon us. And, you know, this is a book that I've had in me for literally a, a decade, if not more, that I wanted to write. And and so actually, uh, you know, when things kind of pulled back due to uh, COVID, it gave me the opportunity to just sit and focus on writing it. And the reason that I wrote it is, uh, you know, my feeling has always been that there are a whole host of indignities that organizations subject their customers and their employees to. 
you know, with customers, it's take your pick, long waits, unhelpful staff, if you can even find them, uh, incomprehensible communications and account statements, company reps who simply don't do what they say they're going to do. Uh, and then in the employee realm, you know, you've got mercurial bosses uh, that don't give any career development, um, that don't ba- provide balanced feedback, uh, offer ambiguous direction to people, um, poor responsiveness, all that stuff. So there's a lot of toxicity out there. And the thing that always bothered me is that from my work, I know that there are so many simple things that organizations and leaders can do to eliminate those indignities, uh, not just by changing the mechanics of the underlying experience, but also by using psychology, using cognitive science to shape people's perceptions and memories of those encounters. And that's really why I wanted to write the book to get that message out there. So right off the top, in the first couple of lines in the book, you set a very high watermark saying, if you're satisfying your customers, you're nowhere near doing enough. How realistic is it for you to set the bar that high? And and why is it now such a life or death situation where satisfaction isn't good enough and you've got to be, as my podcast partner, Steve Dennis, insists, somehow remarkable? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it is it, uh, the opening line of the book, as you know, uh, is uh, I think it's, uh, you know, if you're aspiring to satisfy your customers, then you're aspiring to mediocrity. And uh, the reason that I say that is because um, to create real, sustainable competitive advantage, you can't just rely on satisfying the people that you work with. You really need to impress them. You need to leave that indelible, positive impression in their minds that's going to make them excited to work with you again and to tell others uh, about you. And the fact of the matter is that there's lots of research out there that shows satisfied customers defect all the time. So if you're trying to derive strategic advantage from just satisfying, you're probably not going to get to where you want to be. Now, In terms of your question, well, is impressing customers setting the bar too high? I would say absolutely not. And that's because in many industries, the bar is set so low. And, you know, here's how I would characterize it for you, Michael, and your listeners. And, you know, I think you'll probably recognize these kinds of situations. But, you know, when you call, say, an 800 line and someone immediately picks up the phone, are you not pleasantly surprised? When you're in the aisle of a retail store, Uh, you know, and you've got a question, you're looking for something. uh, And so you search for an employee to help you. Are you not surprised if you actually find one who's just a few steps away and not only is there, but is actually competent and helpful? And the reason that I use these examples is because they illustrate something that came out of my research for the book. Um, I actually found uh, in some of the research I did that 23% 23% of consumers say, biz- say that businesses um, do not consistently meet all their expectations. Uh, half of consumers say they're not even surprised when they have difficulty contacting a business to get help. And once they make contact, more than half say they're not even moderately surprised when employees fail to be helpful. So my point is that the calculus around what it takes to delight a customer has fundamentally changed. People have become so accustomed to bad customer experiences that they've come to practically expect certain annoyances. And in an environment like that, you know, if you just respond quickly to people, if you do what you say you're going to do, if you take ownership for helping them, these are all things that can make an indelible impression on people because it's rare that they consistently see such behavior uh, from many of the businesses that they work with. You know, it's almost counterintuitive because in one way, the bar has been set so low in some instances. 
And, and your description triggers one of my pet peeves. You know, when you reach out to your customer service center and you get that message, sorry, you're really busy, so it's going to be a long wait. And yeah, I don't know. It's not as much that you're busy because <laughs> yeah. uh, this has been going on for 18 months. You just don't have enough staff in right. the contact center. But, <laughs> but it feels like the bar is so low some days that just answering the phone, as you say, is, is remarkable in a lot of circumstances. And or am I overthinking this a bit? No, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's not even that it's good enough. It, it actually could be impressive. You know, I mean, it's so, as you said, it's so often you pick up the phone and you call a company. I mean, in the airline industry now, there was just an article I saw uh, in the paper recently where pe- passengers were talking about being on the phone for eight hours waiting for someone to pick up at the airline. And, you know, that, of course, is not unusual. There are a lot of industries, as you say, that just have not done a good job um, staffing their call centers appropriately. So I think, and, and it's not just call centers, it's just the idea of taking ownership for a customer's need or request and doing what you commit to do. Uh, that is something that happens so rarely that I don't think it is even just satisfying. I think people remember that because they, they see it so rarely. You tell a story about rap rage in the book, which is funny. I've got a long history working in retail. And, you know, you come to realize that things are wrapped that way because, you know, look, there's a lot of theft. But the story you tell about how Amazon recognizes the opportunity and creates and markets frustration-free packaging, to me, it was a good example highlighting the trade-offs you need to make sometimes as a business. You need to decide about where you're going to land on customer experience and why, right? Yeah, I think that it's an illustration that every business needs to consider the constraints in which they have to operate and then architect a customer experience that impresses within that framework. So to your point, brick and mortar stores, they use that special packaging to prevent theft. Um, So they might not be able to replicate something like Amazon's frustration-free packaging. I think the critical recognition, though, on their part is that there are things that they can do that online retailers can't. Um, And actually, you mentioned one of your earlier guests, um, former Best Buy CEO, uh, Hubert Jolie. And, you know, Best Buy is actually featured in the book, in my book, because, uh, you know, even Jeff Bezos praised uh, Jolie, um, just saying he had done a wonderful job at Best Buy. Many people had written Best Buy off along with all the other brick and mortar retailers that were being overrun uh, by the e-retailers. But, what Best Buy did is, you know, going back to this idea of finding, you know, what can you do within the constraints you have? Well, they realized there were things they could offer to customers that customers found valuable that the Amazons of the world couldn't offer. Uh, for example, they flipped the script on showrooming, uh, you know, which is the bane of all retailers where people visit the store, see a product, and then buy it online from Amazon. They flipped that and they embraced what they called showcasing where they sought to give consumers a place where they could touch, feel, and try out technology all under the guidance of a well-trained staff. And and that concept uh, had such great appeal that Best Buy was approached by other companies to rent out space for stores within stores, uh, within the Best Buy uh, big box, you know, so Microsoft, Apple, Samsung, even Amazon and Google, they were showcasing their wares within Best Buy stores. So to me, that's an example of a company that's recognizing, okay, there are certain things that the e-tailers can do that we can't, but then conversely, there are things that we can do as a brick and mortar operation that the e-tailers can't replicate. And that's what we need to focus on in, in order to differentiate ourselves. You know, one of the things just staying on Hubert Jolie in his great book, The Heart of Business for a Bit, is his epiphany 
And it's right in the title of your book, Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. You do a great job in the book of expanding our understanding of customers in the business context, but your perspectives around a more broadly encompassing strategy is, as Hubert realized, employees with a secret sauce beyond all the strategies and all the great ideas. Talk about that for a bit. Yeah, I I, I think that... Um you know, there. I like to think of a great customer experience as a beautifully choreographed performance, uh, and and I love that analogy because you know what do you want to happen in a performance? You want your audience at the end of the performance to just rise from their seats, applaud, you know, scream for the encore, leave the theater, and and, and rave about the show to others. And if you take the analogy a step further, I think there's an onstage and a backstage piece to customer experience. And the onstage piece is everything that your customers can see, feel, hear, and touch. Um, and I think you know most people's heads go to those things when they're thinking about customer experience. They're thinking about the websites, the uh, point of sale, the, at, the, at a sales counter, things like that. But then there's this backstage piece. And by backstage, I don't mean back office, which is a term that sets me off and I, I don't like to use. But I, I mean by backstage, anything that's happening behind the curtain that while invisible to your customers – um, nonetheless influences the quality of the experience that they're going to get. So some examples of backstage influences are things like, how do you hire and select people? Um, you know, how do you make sure you're bringing people on board that actually have the, the customer experience gene, if you will, that have the, you know, bring the empathy to the table that makes them uh, good in front of customers? Uh, how do you onboard them and sort of uh, instill in them your company's sense of purpose and your vision? How do you measure them, their performance, and then reward and recognize? Because obviously those are things that are going to influence their behavior, either in good ways or not so good ways. And I think that um, what, uh, what Best Buy and, and Jolie, what they you know, really understood when he came on board, I mean, he spent a lot of time just listening to employees and understanding, well, what are the obstacles that, that you face in delivering a consistently great experience to your customer. Because, you know, in, in, in my experience, I've found 99% of the people that come to work in any business, they, they come to work, they want to do a great job for you and your organization. But where companies go wrong is that oftentimes inadvertently, they are putting obstacles and impediments in front of their employees that despite their best intentions, makes it difficult for them to impress that end customer. And so that's, I think, a really important part of the equation is not just the onstage piece, but the backstage piece and making sure that everything is aligned behind the curtain. So those employees are engaged, equipped, and inspired to deliver that consistently great impression. So what we're really talking about here is, is basically culture. Now let me pivot around a little bit, and uh, as you think deeply around the COVID era, and one of the changes I think it's probably brought is a different perspective around where people and how people work. So, you know, how are you thinking around hiring people and maintaining that culture where you might not actually meet that person, uh, or certainly see meet with them less? You don't have that day-to-day -day interaction, and, and that is probably the reality to some degree of our future. How, how are you thinking about that? Well, I, I think it gets down to, uh, you know, you really have to think about what is it that shapes a culture? And I think there are a lot of things that shape a culture that don't have anything to do with live, in-person interactions in the halls of, you know, a physical facility. To me, a lot of the things that shape culture for uh, for employees, for the workforce, um, is sort of the workplace constructs that surround them 
and the environmental cues that are signaled to them. And you know what I mean by that, it gets back to some of the examples I gave you when I was talking about the backstage piece. Uh, you know, the tool sets that you give your employees, that the degree to which those are, are helpful and allow them to reach their potential and to be the best that they can be, that's something that helps shape a culture. Um, if you are uh, if you're developing uh, performance metrics, um, there are metrics that can create uh, toxic cultures, um, such as one, you know, there was a, uh, a, a bank in the U.S., Wells Fargo, that uh, came under a lot of scrutiny because they, it turned out that they were opening up unauthorized accounts for millions and millions of customers. And they got into a lot of trouble with regulators. And when people picked apart what went on, it actually came down to the way people in the organization were measured and rewarded. They were measured and rewarded based on how much cross-selling they did for each account. And it bastardized people's behavior. So they started to do really unethical things just because it was the only way they could meet their metrics and get their bonuses. So that's an example of another construct in the workplace that creates, uh, that helps shape a culture. And mind you, it is independent of whether you are in person or remote. Um, and then from a leadership standpoint, that actually, you know, that's certainly an important lever in shaping culture. You know, 70% of employees say the most stressful thing about their job is their immediate boss. And when you're, you know, when you're in a leadership position, I don't care if it's in person or if it's virtual, there are a lot of things that you can do that can make people feel supported, make them feel like you are advocating for them. Um, and those are all things that are going to help enhance the culture, because when you know that the company and your boss has your back and is really trying to help you do your best and reach your potential, you know, you'll walk through walls for those people. And that really shapes a culture that I think is at the heart of, of any great organization. I've been thinking lately about how to create that that high performance and cherished workplace culture without the traditional workplaces like you know, sometimes I think we make the mistake of applying the old norms to a new hybrid workplace reality. And, and you know, there's lots of talk about, well, you know, I'm going to miss that casual interactions that, that generated that spark. And, and I asked leaders to give me five examples of where that actually <laughs> resulted in something great. And, and often it's a little hard to come by. So, so what does inculcating culture look like in this future? Is it, is it more off-sites? Is it gathering at conferences or, or things where there's a disproportionate impact of getting people together purposefully versus casually as they do in the before time in, in offices? Are, are, how are you starting to think about that as we come to at least um, you know, the end of this phase of the COVID era? Yeah, I think that you're right um, that uh, companies are going to need to rethink uh, how they facilitate um, those kinds of connections between people. Uh, I do think that the jury is out on the degree to which hybrid or remote work is either a, uh, a catalyst or an inhibitor to things like innovation. Um, you know, there really is conflict conflicting research on that. Um, but, you know, there's no question that there's value in getting to see people in person, at least occasionally. And so I think that you're right, that, custom, that, that companies will probably need to be more deliberate about how do they convene people uh, periodically in order to do that. Um, I actually have a close colleague of mine who 
uh, had a largely virtual team, uh, you know, well before it was in vogue due to COVID. Uh, it was just happened to be the setup of his team. And that was something that he always uh, took pains to do was to make sure that periodically, whether it's semi-annual or, or something along that time frame, that he was bringing everybody together uh, in one place. And I think that's something that that managers will will need to think more about. But, you know, I also, I I, I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that uh, it's it, take, for example, you know, having the Zoom with multiple people on it where it's hard for someone to just sort of stand out as you can in, say, a boardroom and just speak over, you know, everyone else or just, you know, stand up and whatnot. I think an example of just how managers can help employees feel good in this kind of setup is you're on a Zoom and you just take a moment to make sure if you haven't heard from someone in a discussion that, you know, you single them out and you say, hey, John, do you have anything to add? Because, you know, it's a lot, it's easy for people to be stepped on in a Zoom and sort of, you know, they they can't like get an award in edgewise. And those are things, again, that they, they, they're they small cues, but they, they help to shape a culture because what that says to the employees is, you know, nobody out here has an outsized voice. Like my manager wants to hear from everybody and then my manager is going to reflect on that input and, and then make a judgment, make a decision. So I really think it's important for people, even in a hybrid workplace, even in an all virtual workplace, to not underestimate how those small, subtle cues with how you interact with people, even online, can help shape their views about what kind of environment is it that I'm working in. All right. Well, let's get back to the book for a bit, and and let's get to the back half, or not, not physically, that second part of the great book. And it's one of the things I love about your book is that it starts to lay out the not just the groundwork for your thoughts and philosophies, but then you get to put in basically a playbook. Like you have a playbook of twelve principles. And now I know it's kind of like asking you which is your favorite kid, but of these twelve principles. What are the ones that really, I guess, let's, let's phrase it, some might be table stakes and others are key differentiators. Are, are there one or two that you'd call out that, that you would say that, uh, you know, you need to really win and execute at these um, to be differentiated and uh, the others are table stakes and, and you need to be comparable with them? But, I, you know, just give me a sense of the, the 12 principles and... Yeah. and you know, give me that kind of highlight. So, you know, the overview of the 12 principles is basically that uh, the, the, the research that I've done over the years into companies that excel at customer experience, that are creating lifelong fans out of their customers and their employees, um, you know, basically what I found is they were all dipping into the same set of tools for creating those impressions. And the 12 principles is basically just about distilling all of those techniques into a dozen uh, approaches that really can be employed by any business in any industry. Now, um, you know, what I explain in the book is that these are universal principles of customer experience because they can be applied to any type of customer interaction or any type of business, but that doesn't necessarily mean they need to be applied universally. And what I mean by that is companies can rightfully choose to accentuate some of these principles over others. And that can work really well as long as it's aligned with your brand promise to customers and, and the, the vision that you have for your customer experience. So to answer your question, I would say that there are certain princ- principles of the 12 that have elements of table stakes to them, but they can also be leveraged in a way that kind of takes it up a notch and creates competitive advantage. And I'll give you an example of one. Uh, one of the principles is about creating relevance, 
to your cost for your customers, um, you know, which basically is table stakes in the sense that you've got to deliver a product and a service experience that actually has relevance to the people who are going to be buying it. You know, that's a kind of a fundamental. But you can also make that a differentiator, too, because if you think about it, if you are really good at developing a keen understanding of your customers, it positions you to develop new products and services that address their unarticulated needs. And that no longer is a source of satisfaction. That becomes impressive. So that's an example of something that's part table stakes, but part opportunity to impress. Now, on the flip side, if I had to give you an example of one that I would say is totally not table stakes, but is prime opportunity to impress, uh, I would say it's uh, the principle about um, advocating for those that you serve, being an advocate for customers or employees. My research found that only one in five people believes that businesses routinely act in the customer's best interest. And so if you do that in a tangible way, if you demonstrably advocate uh, uh, for your customers, and an example being like the way Southwest Airlines and Delta Airlines in the U.S., they, they, for, forgo, they chose to forego millions in revenue uh, to block middle seats for onboard social distancing during the pandemic for over a year. Uh, or Ally Bank in the U.S. recently eradicated all overdraft fees. You know, these are examples of companies that are basically uh, taking actions that, in the short term, that they take a hit for in terms of revenue. But it shows people, hey, we're doing something to advocate for what we believe is in your best interest. That creates an impression on people, one that they're going to remember, and one that's going to lead them to keep coming back for more, as well as to tell others about you. Well, no, that's interesting because that gets us back to where we were talking about, about companies making trade-offs. So a short-term financial trade-off for a longer-term customer benefit that's going to really pay off in the longer term, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, I think that's a common thread with companies that do this well is that, you know, they're in it for the long game. Uh, you know, there are sort of two approaches. You can solve for uh, the customer experience that's going to maximize long-term loyalty. Uh, you know, which I would argue is best for your financials in the long run, or alternatively, you solve for the customer experience that minimizes defections. And, you know, that is really setting the bar low. I don't know how that's inspirational to anyone that works in one of those companies. But yeah, I mean, the organizations. Yeah, that's the uh, we win if they just don't leave philosophy, right? Right, that's right. I mean, the organizations that, that succeed at this, they just recognize the lifetime value of a customer and the idea that if, if, you, if you cement that relationship, if in the example I just gave you, if they see you tangibly advocate for their interests, I mean, if you've got them on board for the rest of their lives and you've got them spreading positive word of mouth about you, I, you know, that's priceless. Okay, last question or second to last question. And, you know, we've, we've been in this COVID era now for 18, 20 months. Uh, I think we can see the end. The goalpost keeps moving a little bit. Any early thoughts on how, from your perspective, customers have changed, customer behavior has changed, and, and anything businesses should be thinking about in terms of their customers and the, and the impact of, of the COVID era on their habits? Yeah, I think the key lesson, um, and it's one that really has, uh, has been signaled in prior uh, economic and societal crises, is that um, 
you have to always re-examine what's relevant to your customers. It actually goes back to that principle uh, that we were just talking about a moment ago. Because, uh, and, and there are examples in the book of this, of companies that, you know, I don't want to say that they exploited the pandemic, uh, because that's not the right way to characterize it. What they did is they, they very quickly stepped back and thought to themselves, immersed themselves, you know, in the lives and the minds of their customers and thought, well, what's relevant to the people that we serve now? Because obviously everything that was relevant yesterday is kind of thrown out the window. They've got a new, totally new host, uh, host of concerns and needs and, and aspirations and whatnot. So what might we be able to do differently? How could we tweak our customer experience? Are there different products or services that we might be offering, different features that we should offer that are going to achieve greater relevancy for people uh, in in this current time? And um, and, and I think that that I think that's a key takeaway from the pandemic is just the importance of of continually doing that. On the employee side of the equation, I think the key takeaway is uh, I, I and I think it's a good one. It's it's heightened appreciation really for uh, the people that work in an organization at any level and the role that they play. Um, you know, we all are indebted to the the truckers, the frontline folks and whatnot that kind of kept things going while we were all locked down and were delivering groceries to us or whatnot. And so I think that the dignity of all work is something that I believe was reinforced. Uh, and I hope that companies over the long term will sort of take that to heart and understand how important it is to um, uh, to appreciate those employees that are in those roles and to create an environment that helps them to thrive, that not only keeps them safe, but helps them to reach their potential and, and, and sort of advances their well-being. Well, what a great way to end our discussion. I love, I love all those points, and, and let's leave it there. The, the book is From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. John, thanks so much for joining me on The Voice of Retail's great discussion. Uh, if people want to learn more more about you, more about your work, and uh, more about the book and where to find it, where do they go? Tell us, uh, tell us all about that. Sure. So uh, if they want to learn more about the book as well as order it from their favorite retailer, uh, they can go to the official website of the book, which is uh, www.impressedtoobsessed.com. That's impressed, the number two, obsessed.com. And then if they'd like to learn more about me and my consulting and speaking services, they can go to my website, which is www.johnpico.com. That's J-O-N-P-I-C-O-U-L-T.com. And uh, Michael, I just want to thank you for a great conversation. I really enjoyed being on the show. Yeah, it was my treat as well, John. And, and I wish you continued success and, and the best of luck. And again, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Voice of Retail. Be sure and follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy podcasts so you don't miss out on the latest episodes, industry news, and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating review as it really helps us grow so that we continue to get amazing guests onto the show. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmyleblanc.co. Until next time, stay safe, have a great week. <laughs>